The word of God from Psalm 69, verses 1 through 12 and 19 through 29. Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in the deep mire where there is no foothold. I come into deep waters, and the flood sweeps over me. I am weary with my crying out. My throat is parched. My eyes grow dim with waiting for my God. More in number than in the hairs on my head are those who hate me without cause. Mighty are those who would destroy me, those who attack me with lies. What did I not steal much now, or what I did not steal much I now restore? O oh God, you know my folly. The wrongs I have done are not hidden from you. Let not those who hope in you be or in you be put to shame through me, O God, O Lord God of hosts. Let not those who seek you be brought to dishonor through me, O God of Israel. For it is your sake that I have been borne reproach, that dishonor has covered my face. I have become a stranger to my brothers, an alien to my mother's son. For zeal for you, for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen upon me. When I wept and humbled my soul with fasting, it became my reproach. When I made sackcloth my clothing, I became a byword to them. I am the talk of those who sit in the gate, and the drunkards make songs about me. You know my reproach and my shame and my dishonor. My foes are all known to you. Reproaches have broken my heart so that I am in despair. I look for pity, but there was none, and for comforters, but I found none. They gave me poison for food, and for my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. Let their own table before them become a snare, and when they are at peace, let it become a trap. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see, and make their loins tremble continually. Pour out your indignation upon them, and let your burning anger overtake them. May their camp be a desolation. Let no one dwell in their tents. For they persecute him whom you have struck down, and they recount the pain of those you have wounded. Add to them punishment upon punishment. May they have no acquittal from you. Let them be blotted out of the book of the living. Let them not be enrolled among the righteous. But I am afflicted and in pain. Let your salvation, O God, set me on high. This is God's word given for our good. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Would you remain standing as we pray? Heavenly Father, thank you for your word, and um, thank you for the great privilege of preaching. Lord, I would ask that you would help my mind to remember and to make simple, very complex and meaty things. Lord, we confess that Psalm 69 
doesn't easily resonate with our spirit, but show us. Show us, Lord, how to know you, how to fall in love with you, how to grow in obedience, how to have our inner lives shaped by your word. Help us by your spirit, we'd ask, that we might glorify the Savior. For we pray in his name, amen. You may be seated. Good morning. Um, my name's Ronnie. If I haven't had the pleasure of meeting you, I'm a pastor here at Denver Prez. It was a few years ago now. Some of you probably will remember there's a huge uh, headline in college sports. It was a scandal that came out about the football program at Penn State. It turns out, like for years, one of their assistant coaches had molested several children that were involved in his charity. Um, and that's horrible in its own right. But what's, what adds insult to injury is that someone actually found out about it and reported it. And it turns out that the school itself systematically failed to deal with the abuse in order to preserve the university's public image. And uh, one uh, sort of op-ed piece reflecting on it, the writer says this, he says, and this is harrowing. He says, by working so hard to preserve Penn State's public image, the administration allowed it to rot on the inside. Working so hard to look nice on the outside, it was rotting on the inside. That is, that is shocking. And perhaps it's shocking because I find it convicting. Like, right, we're, we're working so hard to make everyone think we're doing so well while we ourselves might be rotting on the inside, we, right? We come to church. We go to Bible studies and community groups. So we do all the external things that make others think well of us, but maybe our inner lives are rotting Maybe our emotions are enslaved to worry, or enslaved to greed, or enslaved to lust and anger. And then the weight of our shame is like just too much to bear. And so we begin to lose hope. We experience no hope. And then what happens? When you're hopeless, your prayers become mechanical and even insincere if we utter them at all. If any of that even comes close to your spirit, I want you to know that God has given us the Psalms. And as we said, the Psalms are songs that are meant to help us say words and to put words on our hearts that we're not used to saying. And then what happens by doing them, we're gradually appropriating them to our own lives. I want you to think of the Psalms of like, uh, think of them like training wheels uh, uh, that you would put on a bike for a child, right? The idea is that he or she would learn what it's like to ride the bike correctly. Well, the Psalms are doing the same thing. They teach us to ingest the words of the psalmist 
because the Psalms reflect a godly inner emotional life. And, and this is not just for personal applications. I hope there's that. But you got to remember, right, this is the, the Spotify playlist of ancient Israel during their worship, right? Israel would recite these words together, and the entire community would learn with these training wheels how to collectively relate to God, how to relate to themselves and their inner lives, and how to relate to one another in a way that brings glory to the God of this universe who made you. So this morning, we're going to look at Psalm 69, or just portions of it. It's really uh, long, and um, I, I want you to know that I, uh, I'm so thankful that actually Jason selected this, this particular one. Um, it's remarkable because Psalm 69 is either alluded to or cited over 20 times in the New Testament. See, your New Testament writers sincerely believe that Psalm 69 gained, gained deeper significance when Jesus entered into human history. And as a result, when we begin to lay eyes and study this psalm, we really need to do it with two, two sort of lenses. The first lens, as we do, is we need to understand the original author and its original audience, right? So this psalm was authored by David. David, as king, was the principal representative of Israel. And uh, in, in many ways, the fortunes of Israel are tied to the obedience of that representative, right? And so Psalm 69 is going to show us an ideal response of a faithful Israelite while he is suffering the wrongs of, that, that come even at the hands of people within his own tribe, right? That come from within his own people. But there's a second lens that's really important for us to get our brains around. And it's understand this, that Jesus read and was so familiar with Psalm 69 that he gave himself perfectly to its ideals and embodied them. Jesus was Israel's ideal representative. Jesus was true Israel. He was what Israel was supposed to be. And so the authors of the New Testament, to include Jesus himself, would use the words of Psalm 69 as if they were their own, even declaring that they were prophetic. So like just as one example before we get into this, notice that Jesus, what he says in John 15, he's dealing with the rejection of Israel's leaders against him. And, and Jesus says this, he says, if I had not done among them works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and, and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. And then citing Psalm 69 says, they hated me without a cause. See, in a very special way, Jesus sees himself as the one who embodies Psalm 69 perfectly. And so there's something really special about this psalm. So in the following minutes, I'm just going to mine this precious psalm with you to see first its original significance and then its new significance in Jesus. And so in doing, I hope, what I'm hoping will happen by doing this exercise, and just heads up, it is a little bit meatier today. It's a little bit, teacher, a little bit more teachy than you get from me on a normal Sunday. But what I'm hoping is that by mining it, this psalm will renew our inner life. I don't want it to rot. But there's a risk. 
I want it to make us more like Jesus. Didn't that sound good? A psalm that will make us more like Jesus. Let's do that. So there's a lot of ways to study this psalm this morning. I want us to see four major themes in this psalm for you note takers. Four headings. The servant's pain, the servant's enemies, the servant's anger, and then lastly, the servant's substitute. So pain, enemies, anger, and substitute. Let's begin with the servant's pain. So the psalm takes us through just, you, you heard it, right, through a variety of emotions. So right from the beginning, the psalmist speaks as if he's like literally sinking. Floodwaters are like about to drown him. Look at verses 1 and 2. Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire where there is no foothold. I've come into deep waters and the flood sweeps over me. So, so the psalmist has been crying out day and night, and he's tired. And strangely, even though he's about to drown in water, his mouth is dry. Verse 3, I'm weary with my crying out. My throat is parched. So he's so exhausted, his eyes have stopped looking for God. He says, my eyes grow dim with waiting for my God. So he's sinking in sadness, right? He's sinking in sadness. And what we have here is a man who's vulnerable, right? He, he, can't, he can't just shrug off the slander and the betrayal. It hurts so bad. And as we're going to see, these attacks come from people within his own family, within his own community, and he keeps sinking and sinking. And he, and he, can't, just, he can't forget about it. He can't just turn off his heart. And yet, though it's on, it's breaking. His heart's breaking. And then this pain comes to a climax that very early in the psalm in verse 4, he says, More in number than the hairs of my head are those who hate me without cause. Mighty are those who would destroy me, those who attack me with lies. What I did not steal must I now restore? So there's like no justice. Like these people hate for no good reason. And the scorn has no rational basis. And, and it's provoking in the singer this indignant response. Listen, if you've, ever, if you've ever come to my house, you may or may not know this. Like my house is a mess 50% of the time. Now, when you come over, I'll clean it up, right? Because I need to pose a little bit. Um, why is my house messy 50% of the time? Well, because I have four beautiful children who are teenagers. And, uh, and we make a mess. Uh, when they were younger, you know, maybe they would leave a toy on the ground. I would, maybe I would say to Micah, my oldest, I'd be, I'd say, Micah, would you please pick up this toy and put it away? Now, if Micah made that mess, I mean, he will grudgingly do as I have directed. But if that mess was made by one of his sisters, I will hear something like this. I did not make that mess. It's so unfair that I have to pick it up. So Micah is afraid of paying the consequences of others' actions. Micah's logic is just like the psalmist. Am I forced to restore what I did not steal? You feel that a little bit? Now, that, that illustration is, is funny, but I want you to notice how the injustice is what pro provokes these tender words. Like in verse 19, he says, You know my approach and my shame and my dishonor. My, my foes are, are all known to you. 
reproaches have broken my heart so that I am in despair. I looked for pity, but there was none, and for comforters, and I found none. So one leads to a kind of tenderness. Let me make just two quick applications. Those prayers, those tender prayers, those are not ordinary, ritualistic, robotic prayers, right? They're not. This man's being honest about his pain, and he's talking to God like a friend who can understand his pain. Do you, do you know God well enough to talk to him like that? Like when you pray, instead of saying thanks, good food, good meat, good God, let's eat. Please give me something. Do you ever just describe the hurt in your heart the way you might describe it to a friend? God, my eyes are failing to look for you. Like my throat is dry from crying out to you. I feel alone and hurt, Lord. This psalm is like David's prayer journal. And if you'll let it, it could begin to shape your inner life and prayer life too. And the wonderful thing about praying with such tenderness and honesty is that you'll be able with time to embody the, the, the matching grace as your inner life is, is trained by the psalm, God's grace then meets you in that place. Let me just one second application on this point. In the New Testament, it was interesting. In Philippians 2, the text tells us that Jesus surrendered his rights for undeserving people, right? Y'all know this. Jesus, being in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing taking on the form of a servant. See, this was all unfair to Jesus, and he did it, right? While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Like, it was unfair. Here's why I bring this to your attention. Our ability to serve others, even when it is unjust, even when it is unjust, is our ultimate apologetic that Jesus is real. That all people everywhere should give their allegiance to this one. And this is true like in every sphere. I'm not just talking about the cultural, I mean even like at home, like in our marriages. Like well, sometimes we'll look at our spouses like they're the enemy, right? Or, or in a friendship, because we feel hurt. And when we experience some kind of injustice, we begin to battle with them, which just escalates a fight. But what if, what if we laid down our arms and we sank into service? What if we allowed God to hear our cry and instead of taking matters into our own hands, we sink into service? How might that actually shock our spouses or our friends or our neighbors? They might want to do the same thing. See, only in Jesus do we find a God who surrenders all for the sake of others who did not deserve such mercy. His pain 
brought our salvation. That emotional paradigm that's given to us here will bring new life into our most meaningful relationships, if you'll let it. Let's move to our second point. We looked at the servant's pain. Let's look at the servant's enemies. So David, the psalmist, he says that there, verse 4, more enemies than hairs on my head. And these aren't apparently ordinary enemies. These are people from within the community, right? These are not outsiders. He says they have become, verse 8, become a stranger to my brothers. These enemies are even turning the signs of devout mourning into an occasion to mock and to humiliate him. Look at verse 10 and 11, this language of fasting and sackcloth. He says, when I wept and humbled my soul with fasting, it became my reproach. When I made sackcloth my clothing, I became a byword to them. So, like, right, within the Jewish tradition, fasting and sackcloth are ritualistic symbols of sincere sadness. These are signs of sincere godliness. So even David's most godly actions are turned into an occasion of mockery and persecution. Like, why is this happening? I would suggest to you, and there's a couple, reasons, a couple ways we can explain this, but at least one is that moral living has on an occasion a way of provoking dislike and unease in the people around us. You know, um, I read a story years ago, a police officer, his whole detachment was being bribed by like a street pimp. And the pimp would go to the police station every month. He would make a little deposit of money, a bribery, in return for not arresting uh, his prostitutes, his, his employees, if you will. So one of the police Christ, one of the police officers became a Christian. Like he, he had a conversion, gave his life to Jesus, and he could not, in clear conscience, keep accepting the money, the bribe. Well, that shift caught the attention of all of the other, the rest of the unit, and they tried to coerce them into taking the money. They're like, take the money, man. So at one point, one officer took the, the new Christian aside and said, hey, listen, take the money. The fellas don't like you thinking that you're better than us, that you're more pure than us. Take the money, or the next time you call for backup, help might be slow in coming. That's shocking. Because the guy had a clear conscience about it, because he wanted to do the right thing. There is a kind of trauma and attack we don't have stories of that. I mean, that, that's on far end of the spectrum here, of course. But there is a kind of attack that we will endure simply by pursuing righteousness. Now, but please listen to me carefully. There are people who will not like you simply because you love Jesus and you aspire to live a holy life. See, whenever a person demonstrates such selfless moral conviction, it is intrinsically frightening at times. When a person gets near to a moral standard that is perfect, we tend to do one of two things. We'll either run away from it or we'll run over it. Right, so like it used to be that it, with Christian morality, particularly in the, in the public square, 
You could just like, hey, two people, we just agree to disagree. We have different views about human sexuality, about moral life. We just agree to disagree and we can be friends. But now, if you just maintain those same views, the language is you're a hateful person. We introduce the word, that's hateful. It's not we can just disagree and like each other. Now you're hateful and it's creating dynamics. And you see how this works. So let me ask you, is there anyone in your life that has felt threatened by your choices to make godly decisions for yourself and for your family? Without you being pushy, without you being judgy, right? I'm not, it's not what I'm talking about. I'm just talking about just gentle following your convictions. If you can say yes, you're in good company. Jesus says in John, red letters in your Bible, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. And if there's none of that in your entire life, if, there, if that is nowhere present, it might be a sign, might be a sign that you've overly accommodated a culture that does not believe in Jesus. Or the teachings of Jesus make no difference in your life. It's possible. Again, please don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying you should be obnoxious or rude. Please don't hear me. I'm not asking you to put on sandwich boards. I'm not trying, I'm not asking you to get in every argument at the workplace. Please don't do that. Like, I'm not asking you to, like, change the world one tweet at a time. Like, stop doing that. I'm not asking you to do any of those things. I'm asking you to gently follow your Savior with conviction. And it might be that that alone, as kind as you are, as gentle as you are, that alone will create a kind of fear and hostility towards you. All right, let's move to our third point. We look at the servant's pain and enemies. Now the servant's anger. Okay. So if you're listening carefully, we've come to the point of the psalm that we have to be really careful with. Please put on your thinking caps with me. It's going to get a little bit dense. So starting in verse 22 through 28, we begin a portion of the psalms that theologians call imprecation. All right? Fancy word alert, imprecation. So imprecation is the act of cursing another person. Notice the strong language and the curse. Verse 22, let their own table become a snare. Verse 24, let your burning anger overtake them. Verse 25, may their camp be a desolation. Verse 28b, let them be blotted out of the book of the living. Are you reading carefully? Those are strong words. Now, to understand how this portion of the psalm is edifying, and these are God's words inspired by the Holy Spirit, to show how they're edifying for us as the people of God, we have to consider a few things. So don't, don't get careless. First, imprecation is not a personal attack. Imprecation is never appropriate for private prayer. 
It is something very specific that is collectively going on as Israel would use this in their corporate liturgies. It's like that portion of our service where we're singing these prayers of the people. We're doing something collective. All right? So the psalmist here is speaking on behalf of the community, not as an individual. And the reason why he's using such strong words is that he's resting upon that promise that God made to Abraham to God's people in, in Genesis 12, where he says, hey, those who bless you, I'm going to bless, but those who curse you, I will curse. And he is bringing that back to God's attention. That's, that's, that's how this works collectively. So this is not personal retribution. The second thing I want to bring to your attention so we read this well is trying to understand God's basic traits, very specifically how the anger of God works. There's this book that kind of came out years ago. Some of you will know this book as soon as I say it. Some will be like, what? It's a book called uh, Men Are From Mars, Women Are From Venus. And it was like a book on marriage, and I, I can't even remember if the book was all that helpful or not. Um, but what I do know is that... What I remember is that um, it was trying to describe how men have certain uh, paternal intuitions and they lean into relationships certain ways. And women have other uh, maternal intuitions and they tend to lean into uh, the world with other intuitions. And so there were like these two lists. And these lists, men could describe things, uh, could embody things on the women's list. Everyone listen. And women could embody things on... Uh, the men's list, they can for sure, but there are these sort of intu- intuitive first, uh, you know, movements. So he, he makes this list. The first one, list one was uh, words like competence, power, achievement, skills, results, accountability. That would be like the, 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 the paternal intuition list. And then the other one, the second list was love, communication, beauty, support, help. And that reflected uh, the Venus or the, the list from women. And what, what happened is they began to put these two lists in front of people asking, which of these two lists describes God? So just we're going to church. Here are two lists. Which, which adjectives describe God? And this inordinate number describes, like list two, the list that describes these sort of maternal intuitions, describes God. That's what people said. That's, those are the words that describe God. And it shows that we have a certain view of what we think God is like and his moral life. But this idea of God being righteously angry seems to be beyond the pale of how we understand him. But here's the deal. God embodies both lists perfectly. That's why it takes men and women together to image God. And so David as Israel's representative, is repre- he is representing God's anger, and he demands accountability. And make no, make no mistake, God is angry, right? He's not, he's not a hippie. The, the poetry here uses very vivid expressions to show God's angry. And the, and the reason, and this is what I want you all to understand, the reason why God is angry and why these are important and sacred words is because God's love is real. Anger is not the opposite of love. 
Can I say that again? Anger is not the opposite of love. They go together. And so to pray for the protection of a loved one, for instance, is to pray that evil would be thwarted, that, that justice would, would, uh, would be achieved. So if someone hurt one of my daughters, it would provoke my anger. My anger would be aroused precisely because of my love, not in spite of it. Y'all see how that works? Anger on occasion is a function of love. I know it can be misused, and it is all the time. doesn't have to be. Remember what we said last time. The abuse of a thing does not negate its proper use. All right. Now, these lines of imprecation are not... Thank you for hanging in here. We're getting dense here. These are not invitations for personal revenge. David is not cursing his enemies from the basis of his own personal holiness. Right? Personal revenge is strictly prohibited, actually, in the Old Testament as it is in the New Testament. This is just a cry that God would thwart evil. See, God has made a pledge to care for his people and this is a plea for God to renew that commitment. So if you'll remember how we've talked about this, this is like biblical theology. God is, or excuse me, David here is God's representative. Remember uh, last semester when we were um, in the fall, when we, were t- we studied David and Goliath. So Israel went into battle against the Philistines. But instead of like two armies fighting each other, they each selected a representative And the community of Israel was represented by David, and the community of the Philistines was represented by Goliath. And the actions of the one representative has implications for the entire community. Y'all remember that? Does that make sense? What one does affects the whole. That's what's going on with this imprecation. And so... One, one last observation, scorn exercised against God's representative is really scorn against God himself. So uh, y'all are getting some deep theology now. So try to understand how this works. These cries for imprecation are always conditional. It's meant to provoke and inspire heartfelt repentance. So remember, the enemies in Psalm 69 are not pagans. Who are, who are they? It's, it's the people of Israel. So imagine you're one of those Israelites who hated God. And when you went to the temple, you heard the entire singing Psalm 69. The entire congregation is singing these really strong and even violent words. If you're singing those words and you have opposition towards the God of Israel, it would give you pause, wouldn't it? It'd make you ask some questions. You would feel the weight of your opposition against the God of Israel. Can you see how this works? Can you see how singing the song works congregationally? So these moving and artistic words are meant to provoke strong inward feelings that shape our choices. And we see this all the time. This isn't an abstract concept, right? For instance, if Amanda is in the kitchen cooking the oven is on, there's oil popping off the pans, there's knives everywhere. It's kind of a dangerous place for kids to play. We would all agree, right? So what do I do? I go into the kitchen and I look my kids in the eyes and I say with that grumbly daddy voice, a little bit ominous, you will get hurt. And they see that crazy in my eyes 
And what do they do? They leave the kitchen. Now, it sounds in that moment like a promise. You will get hurt, but it's conditional. Words scare my kids a little bit. They get out. It motivates their actions and their choices. They did not get hurt, did they? They did not get hurt because my words shaped their inner choices. Y'all see how that works? If they would not have responded to my words, then there would have been pain. That's how imprecation works. Y'all just got a big old class of theology of imprecation. Here's why we need these strong words in our psalms, you guys. They are useful for the corporate whole, but not for our private prayers, our private use. These strong words are meant to provoke sincere repentance to those who oppose God. Like when I go to the table, I want you to feel the way. If you oppose God, you need to, you are open to the reality that maybe you oppose him. And it's meant to like make you rethink some things. Not me being grumpy, not like, you know, just firestone, whatever, brimstone. I don't know. I don't even know. How do you say that thing? I don't even know. I didn't grow up like that, but whatever. You know, like when preachers are real grumpy about everything. I'm not, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm just talking about like this solemn pause that there is a God and you will see him one day. Not personal revenge. Please remember that God has promised to take care of his people. All right. Thank you guys for giving me your attention. I am going to use my last point as my conclusion. We looked at, we looked to see how David as God's representative dealt with his pain, his enemies, and his anger. And now we're going to look at now the servant's substitute. So as God's representative, David was meant to embody the life of the ideal Israelite so that those in the community would flourish. If the king does great, if the leader does great, the people flourish. Remember, the people flourish when the leader lives the way he's supposed to live. I mean, we see that even in modern-day politics, right? Good leaders produce flourishing. Bad leaders don't. Well, as I mentioned earlier, the behavior of David against Goliath had implications for everyone. But what happens when the leader doesn't do good? And y'all know we studied 1 Samuel together. David had so many catastrophic failures. And this is why the Old Testament is constantly clamoring for this promised Messiah. Every chapter in the Old Testament is preparing us to meet this promised one, this representative who would be the perfect and true Israelite. And then in the New Testament, from Matthew all the way to Revelation, every writer is unambiguously telling us that Jesus is that promised one. He is the Messiah. And so as the ideal Israelite and representative, he does something amazing. He does something that is so worthy of all of your allegiance and all of your love and all of your affection. Jesus lives the perfect life, the one that we should have lived. He lives it as our representative. And then he substitutes his life for ours. Our pain, our enemies, our anger. And let me explain just using Psalm 69. First, Jesus' pain. Just like David felt the anguish of his circumstances, 
Jesus did too. David cries out, look at verse 4. He says, what I did not steal must I now restore. I mean, you could almost hear Jesus screaming that from the cross. Jesus was perfect. If there's someone who never stole a thing in his life, it was him. And yet, there he is hanging on a cross. And through his substitutionary death, all is restored. He answers yes to the question What I did not steal, must I now pay? And Jesus says, yes, I will do so. And he paid the price of sin. Second, Jesus' enemies. So from the cross, Jesus had so many enemies. And again, you could imagine him looking at his murderers and saying, it is for, verse 9, it is for your sake that I have borne reproach. Like, like, Lord, forgive them. They know not what they do. It's for their sake I've borne reproach. I am their substitute. Although Jesus was perfectly innocent, he took reproach and scorn, the one that we deserve. That's how come in Isaiah 53, it would say of him, he was pierced for our transgression. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was a chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Something's happening to him, and we get some benefit. And then lastly, Jesus' anger. Jesus was angry at those who scorned God. In verse 21, the enemies of God gave the representative, look at verse 21, it says, poison for food. And for my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. You know, remember, Jesus valiantly going to the cross, hanging there in our place. And in church, what happened? What happened to Jesus as he was hanging there on the cross, as his throat is parched? His murderers mockingly put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch, and they held it to his mouth. So your New Testament writers are seeing this in Psalm 69 and saying, this is him, this is him. And when Jesus had received the sour wine, he says in John 19, it is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. Jesus received the sour wine because he saw himself as the ideal representative that Psalm 69 points to, whose death would bring life to those who are united to him in faith. May these words... Give us words so that our inner lives don't rot, but that they would be rejuvenated. Amen. Amen.